It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. How much wild land should we preserve on our planet? And how wild should it be? Is it possible to return land to the wild after it's been used in other ways for centuries? What does wild even mean? Land use is always complicated, but our mindset and understanding of these terms has a big impact on our actions. This paradigm, the scarcity model, that I have unlimited wants but limited resources was so foreign to what I grew up with. Because my value is I have limited wants. I want shelter, I want food, I want warmth, I need water, and I have unlimited resources because those are all provided by the natural world. This year's United Nations Climate Change Conference, better known as COP27, began this past Sunday in Egypt. Delegates from countries all over the world will try and hammer out a plan to fight climate change and will go head-to-head on things like how much fossil fuel use to allow and whether any countries get compensation and financial help. Rewilding land doesn't get as much attention as some issues, but it's an important piece of the climate puzzle. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The guests on today's panel bring unique perspectives on how we manage wild places. Chuck Sams is the first Indigenous Director of the U.S. National Park Service, and philanthropist Christine Tompkins has spent decades conserving land and guiding the establishment of national parks in Chile and Argentina. NBC correspondent Gotti Schwartz moderates the conversation. Here's Schwartz. I'd love to start with you introducing yourself by sharing your environmental identity and and how that has informed your worldview going all the way back to the very beginning when you first realized that you were a, a small human in this natural world. Well, I grew up on our great-grandfather's ranch in California, so um, that we were outdoors all the time. We didn't associate that with nature. It was just that we were forced to be outdoors all the time. Um, but I think the first time that I really began to understand the beauty of nature and, and also the, the front end of the degradation of nature was not until I was in my mid-20s and so on and uh, came out of the climbing tribe and ski racing and um, through Yvonne Chouinard and other friends, I began to really realize that uh, unlike my family who were uh, didn't see things this way that um, there was a whole world out there that I belonged to and fell in love with. How about you, director? Well, Nick Kalawit, Nick Mayetsky, and Naimuma, and Ashwa Nashashashkalash Kloyt, Iwai Kanesh Naknoi, Sloma Tichumna, Nick Yawaipum. Good evening, my friends and relatives. My Indian name is Mockingbird with Big Heart. I come from the place of the Big Springs on the Umatilla Indian Reservation, and I am a keeper of the salmon. My people are Cayuse and Walla Walla, and their actual real names are Walipu, which are people of the ryegrass, and Walulapum, people of the small rivers. And my first identity of that is growing up and understanding my creation story from my own people, the Cayuse, 
when I was told that when I was stood up as a human, that I got my eyesight from eagle, I got my skin from elk, I got my veins from the plant people, I got my hearing from the owl. And so these gifts that were given by the flora and fauna is what make me a human being. And because of that, that's the connection of being able to be raised in the foothills of the Blue Mountains in Eastern Oregon, and the same way. I didn't, was, we were just told to go outside. <laughs> and so you played uh, from the time the sun was up until it went down, as long as you were home before dark. Yeah, and understanding uh, your relationship with the natural world. Mm. Wow. So it, it almost sounds like this is something that you were, th this was your first identity. Your yes, first absolutely. introduction to who you were was where you were from, how that related to the earth, and how you were a steward of, of all of that, right? You know, and our creation story tells us that, that we must keep our promise to be the stewards of the flora and fauna, that we must not do it just for ourselves, but we must do it for seven generations from now. Basically, we only have a lease on the property as it exists today, and our job is to improve it over time, not to destroy it, ensuring that my children, my grandchildren, and children yet born will have those same resources when they join. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and again, this is something I didn't think about before this week, and I've been thinking about it ever since our previous panel, and I encourage everybody to just take a, a moment uh, sometime this week and, and just reflect by yourself uh, what your environmental identity is and, and where it comes from. I was telling you part of my uh, environmental identity, I, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I still consider myself a desert kid. And I still remember, I, I lived right next to a, a national monument, Petroglyphs National Monument, and I would tell my mom, I'm going to the all-subs gas station, I'll be right back, and then I would escape and es explore into these beautiful mesas, and I would find these petroglyphs, and it was, it was me by myself, and, it, and it's those formative memories that you have where you realize that you are just one person on this, on this earth, and in, in that case, you were reminded that there had been people here for quite some time, so... It, that was thanks to a national monument, and uh, I thank you for your stewardship now. Um, I do want to start, though, with the news of the day and the news of, of this month, which is what's going on in Yellowstone. Uh, Yellowstone has been ravaged by floods, and we have also seen Yellowstone on track before this to be uh, have a a banner year. This was going to be the year that you possibly broke records in terms of, uh, of people visiting. Can you give us an update as to how Yellowstone is doing right now and in terms of conditions and roads? How soon could we see Yellowstone fully reopen? You know, we are Americans. We're looking forward to celebrating the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone, America's first national park. Mm -hmm. And the flood that we experienced a few weeks ago was a one in 500 year flood and it was extremely, extremely damaging. You know, at the highest of recorded um, CFS on the rivers had been about 30,000, and we saw over 50,000 CFS on the rivers. To put that in perspective, if, if you don't know what CFS is, cubic feet per, per second. second, if you're a kayaker, yeah, you know, that, that's basically a beach ball. One beach ball is one cubic feet per second of water. So it's 50,000. 50,000, and inside of 24 hours, we saw two and a half inches of rain and nearly five and a half inches of snow melt come through, raising the water by 20 feet. So walls of water just washing away infrastructure and roadways and bridges and homes. Mm -hmm. But they were so resilient. The team on the ground, led by Superintendent Cam Shawley and his incident command team, did a fantastic job. They were able within 24 hours to get 10,000 visitors out of harm's way. They were very concerned that if night fell too soon, that their people would be driving off the ends of roads. So they sent and dispatched law enforcement teams and rangers throughout the park and were able to get them out to safety. 
Since then, we've now what, received a little over $60 million of federal investment to really start getting back open. Uh, the team was able to get the South Loop open very quickly uh, while I was out there just a couple weeks ago, and they're working very, very hard to get the North Loop open. When I did my flyover to see the damage, it's about three miles of very um, destructive parts of roadways, but it happens to be at the most critical junctures. And so we're going to have to figure out how to be more resilient in our practice and adaptation around climate change in order to make sure those roads will last for another 75 to 100 years. So in case another event like this happens, as we're seeing you know, climate change really take effect in the national park system. Now, you said two things. You said this was a 500-year event, and then you said climate change. How much of what we just saw can be attributed to climate change? You no, know, we're really looking into that. We, we believe that it is probably caused by climate change. Last year, it was very dry and we were thought we were going to see another dry season. The rains that happen, the way it happened, uh, indicate that this is just climate change coming into the Pacific Northwest. But of course we're seeing that across the country. We're seeing that in Alaska. We're seeing that down south in the Everglades with salt water moving into freshwater areas. So, you know, we see these things right in the forefront of the national park system and we have the staff working uh, collaboratively with our sister agencies to figure out how to tackle this issue. In climate change, it seems like it's, it has so many different faces. You've got the flooding, uh, you've got erosion, you've got uh, drought, you've got fires. Chris, have you seen, a lot of your work is, is mostly in South America. Have you seen the effects of climate change and devastation in, in some of the parks well, that you've worked with? Yeah, I think it's very similar to almost any of the continents. Um, in Ibera wetlands in the northeastern side, uh, part of Argentina, we had, uh, it's just under a two million acre um, park and 60% of it burned uh, over a six week, six week period, um, just went out a few, uh, two months ago. 60% 60, 60 of the park. So, so these are grasslands largely with island um, forests, but these, these grasslands have evolved with fire mm -hmm. um, from the Jesuits in the 1400s and the indigenous people of, of that territory. But the problem is, is that this was an incredibly complex wetlands of, of river systems, lagoons, lakes, and most of that is dry. Yeah, we're looking at a picture here. So, yes. I mean, so you say fire, you say 60%. Uh, uh, you know, that doesn't look so, like it could burn. So that's one of the larger um, lagoons. Mm -hmm. They're big. That's gone. That's dried out. So as neighboring ranchers to the park are burning grasses, which they have for hundreds of years, there, there is no limit, There's no, there are no borders on that to stop these fires. And the severe heat, 110, 114 degrees every day, and these long-term droughts married to high winds, and there was just no stopping them. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's funny because it, it, it's, you said that a lot of this evolved with fire, and that's something yes. that we've seen in the natural world. Uh, coming from New Mexico, I've been paying attention to what's happening there, and the devastation that was just seen was a prescribed burn by the feds, and it got out of control. But if you look back, it's an area that's overpopulated by trees, and th there just seems to be imbalance almost everywhere. Managing over 400 national parks and national monuments. How how do you 
I mean, how do you deal with climate change, deal with preserving these areas for humans to come and safely visit, while also at the same time making sure that these are not kindling for a super inferno, the likes of which we haven't seen before? Well, you know, indigenous people have lived on this landscape for thousands of years. And while not every tribe was an agricultural tribe, there were all horticultural tribes. The land was not wild. What everybody else was calling wild and still calls wild, we were calling home. And we've had a discussion about how many times tribes don't even have a word for wild land. Um, what they do have a word for is imbalance. And they'll say the land is in imbalance. And so we at the National Park Service are trying to make sure that we keep that imbalance. You can't keep human beings from the natural landscape. They're part of nature. And so when we look across all of these issues, especially under climate change, climate resiliency, we have to figure out what the new balance is going to be. It's not the old balance, we've lost that. We might be able to regain it if we do the right restoration, but right now we have to look at how we're doing land use planning, how we're doing what types of plants we're bringing back in, how we're managing those natural resources and native vegetation, native trees, and balancing that out with fire management, pest control through natural means and being able to also bring back the species in balance. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we, we, we think so often of balance and it's like humans and, and plants. <laughs> and we forget that there are millions, literally millions and millions of species in, in the parks that, that you all have helped protect mm -hmm. and steward. So uh, how important is wildlife in anchoring these ecosystems? I think they're extremely important. We're looking at the uh, return of bison in the thousands in our national park at, at Yellowstone and are be able to uh, do bison recovery uh, through Theodore Roosevelt at Yellowstone, mm. at Grand Tetons, and share those with tribes and other communities throughout the United States. We're looking at wolf recovery, of course, and we've been very strong with wolf recovery. When you bring these species back and they start to balance, they also affect other species. You see more ground animals coming back. You see uh, larger predators also being able to hunt. You're seeing birds coming in and birds of prey to be able to mm. feed off carcasses that they take down. So it's important to bring all of those into the right mix in order to have ecosystem function. So it's about the flora, the fauna, and the big animals, and the small. It, it, down to the, the way that the grasslands the grow, the, grasslands the grow, rivers insects, All of it play an important system. And what I'm so proud about right now working for the Biden administration is that we're talking not necessarily about specific species, though that is important. We are really talking across agencies about what ecosystem function should be. Mm. What do those ecosystems look like in, in South America and some of the parks that you work with? Well, when we first got started in the early 90s, two of the areas we were working in, we didn't have any sense that the, especially the keystone species were missing. And so asking ourselves who's missing really came in about 10 years after we got going. And especially in Iberá, uh, and there's a jaguar sitting there. We ask everywhere we work now, who's missing? And we agreed that as someone said, landscape without wildlife is just scenery, and we never wanted to be in the scenery business. We wanted to be in the business of when we walk away from a project or donate it back to the country, that it's a fully functioning ecosystem, as Chuck was saying. And you can't do that unless, for an, as an example in Iberá, almost all the top species were missing. And so for the 15 years hence, today we have brought back jaguars missing since the 1930s, uh, red and green macaws missing for 130 years, anteaters, tapirs, peccaries, uh, 14 species altogether. 
and they're all back. But that, of course, as you well know, triggers a lot of work that, that and a lot of it you can't anticipate because rewilding extirpated species is not all that common yet. It, of course, South Africa and different African countries have been moving species around, but really breeding and all these other things that you get involved with. But that said, um, a lot is back, and it's, uh, it's maybe the most complicated work mm -hmm. that we do, and that can be technically, it can be politically, it can be socially, but this is where relationships between conservation projects, especially in this new generation of rewilding, the surrounding communities have to be part of these projects from, from the get-go. This is not possible to do unless um, there is a, a mutual benefit between the human and non-human world. Um, and I think that that's absolutely true anywhere in the world. That's, that's like basic. And it takes time. I mean, you're, you're talking about generations of, of animals. Yes. In terms of fostering that, some of that trust, I mean, in Latin America, there is, um, there is a historic distrust of like the, the white uh, savior, a, a wealthy person coming in, yes. buying up a whole bunch of land and promising a better future. Uh, the way I understand it, your, um, your foundation goes in. Don't buys, be shy. Buys millions and millions of acres. And, and the way that I understand it, <laughs> by millions of acres, uh, and then you repopulate it with the animals that lived there, and then you turn it back over to these governments for free. Yes, sir. That, I mean... It... So here... <laughs> well, um, some of our family is here, <laughs> so they know a lot of the war stories, mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, in all of our lives. But we, when we got started, and I think there's a map up that shows you um, a lot of the, not all, but most of the areas that we created and, and uh, gives you an idea. But in the early 90s, we were buying up large tracts of land from private owners. Mm -hmm. No one has ever lived inside anything we've ever purchased. But imagine as Ch Chilean society, these two people from the United States say we're buying this, don't worry, we're going to n not cut the forest and give it all back to you when it's all set. And at one, at one point, you, you all were th some of the largest landowners in the country, right? Yeah, definitely. Momentarily, but <laughs> right, definitely. Right. So what was said about us, we were attempting to create a new Jewish state, even though we were raised as Anglicans. We were building... These were all very serious, a military base for the Argentines to come in and finish Chile off once and for all. The, the author, Mario Vargas Losa, came and, and he, he thought you were working for the CIA, no, right? That, uh, yes, <laughs> we were working for the CIA. That we, um, the list was long, but it was quite serious. And, you know, I think about it today, and, and it's absolutely what we should have expected because in that moment, that's a generation ago, and anytime you're doing something differently, and I'm sure when wolves came back to Yellowstone in, in, the, in, in the beginning, there, these are gunslinging, 
tough fights that only kind of nose to the grindstone and just keep doing what you're doing and start. And of course, from the first day, all of these parks were built by Chileans and Argentines. These are teams. This is not Doug and Chris. So finally, we donated the first park and then, you know, there, there was a lot of community interaction and so on. And little by little, like any good neighbor anywhere in the world, you prove who you are by what you do. And, and it, first four or five years, you know, jets strafing our houses and wow. yeah, it was interesting. It, it, uh, but, so, oh. but that's, I think that collision between economic development and, and production and the hope of conserving the jewels of a country, um, I, it happens everywhere, and um, you have to make sure that it is mutually beneficial mm -hmm. from the local communities all the way up to the national governments, and then just step out of the way. That was our strategy and has been our strategy. One of the things I, I find the most fascinating about sitting here with, with the two of you is you two represent um, a, a march forward that has at times seemed very um, oppressive. And, and I say that because it sounds as though you got a lot of your inspiration from the, national, the shining beacon of the National Park Service of the United States right. and all of our great, beautiful parks. Mm -hmm. And now you are trying in this new century of, of equity and, and inclusion to, to go about creating and establishing these parks for, for other countries. Mm -hmm. However, when we look back at how the national parks in the United States came to be, uh, more often than not, it is horrific. Uh, I mean, Yellowstone, the, the first rangers, I guess, if you call it, or the, 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 they were soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they were forcibly killing or removing the Native Americans that lived there and then guarding the park from them, from them coming back. And, and I mean, all the way, Mount Rushmore. It's just, it's such a dark, dark history. And our national parks probably wouldn't be here without that dark history. And yet now we have you as the first indigenous uh, director of the national park. So I, I gotta ask, how do you reconcile the past and, and, and the present and the future, knowing that dark history uh, and, and sitting where you sit today? You know, coming into this position, I went back to really look and try to understand that history. You know, as a conservationist, I look back at some of the fathers of conservation, uh, Thoreau and Walden, and when they talked about setting lands aside, they also talked about setting lands aside with the Indians still in them. And yet something happened mm -hmm. at the end of Manifest Destiny when we get to see our first mm -hmm. national parks, Yellowstone, Yosemite, mm -hmm. and the others start growing between the late 1870s into the turn of the century. And under Manifest Destiny, there's this ideal that you must have dominion over the land. And so that's why the army was deployed. So our first rangers were soldiers. They were mostly infantrymen. They were buffalo soldiers, um, cavalry soldiers who were doing that. But what's interesting, when you look at the story though, they also were some of the first interpreters. 
they decide to lay down their arms and start working with the community and being educators, which eventually rec comes to the recognition by the Organic Act in 1916 that we must have civilians and not the military in control of our national parks. And to really have these set aside for that bundle of preservation, enhancement, protection, interpretation, along with ensuring that people have access to them. We've also seen the national parks grow over the last 100 years, going again from this over-dominance and over-prescribed way of land management to recognizing that we must work with our local communities, we can, must work with the tribes who have traditional ecological knowledge that they can bring, bring back into the parks to help the reciprocal relationships humans are supposed to have with the flora and fauna. That's extremely important. We've seen this transition, especially over the last decade and a half. We're really seeing folks in the national park system saying, we're moving from this dominance to much more of a stewardship acceptance. And, and, and I see that the, the word stewardship is, is, it seems very intentional and it's very different than we are the custodians of the park. We are, you know, we are, we are the, the, the guardians of the park, right? Uh, when it comes to when it comes to bringing indigenous tribes to the table and, and allowing everyone to have a voice, uh, there's one thing uh, in putting seats at the table and then there's a whole other in resources to allow that stewardship to continue. And I, you know, if a tribe doesn't have the resources to come help in the stewardship, uh, it, it seems almost as a lost cause. It can be. But we're really looking at, and I really appreciate uh, Secretary Order 3403, uh, Secretary Holland put forward that says very clearly, we are gonna fulfill our trust responsibility to tribes. Part of that is ensuring that they have those resources necessary to be that partner, whether that be financial, training, or technical. There are tribes that are fully capable doing co-management and co-stewardship already, but there are smaller tribes that may not have all those tools. We are obligated to co-steward that with them, which means we should be able to provide them those services and those things that they need in order to be able to see, have that seat at the table and to be at the forefront of the management, not talking to them after a management plan is done. And that's what we're seeing, and that's what we're going to do. In yeah, there's one other really strong facet to all of this, and I'm sure you have a similar situation. We call it, wherever we've worked, consulting the geniuses of the place. <laughs> and the team members who are the, the, the keenest crackerjack uh, trackers, really on the rewilding teams in Chile and Argentina, they're people who grew up there and they used to be hunting with their fathers for pumas, um, cougars, uh, because they'd get paid so much per pelt and so on and so forth. Well. A lot of these people now are heads of these teams who are going out and bringing these species back because who knows the complex waterways in the, in the Ibera wetlands or in the Patagonia grasslands and so on and so forth. So um, this is a huge factor of not just trying to create something and hope the communities come in and, and work and tourism comes, but rather, they are really the ones you look toward to tell you where it is you're trying to create something, what, what's here. It, it's almost like your original description of where you come from in the land. And there is nothing, I don't care, I don't care 
any university studies anything, it doesn't hold a candle to the genius, the, the, the sense of being embedded in a place for generations. And those are the people who make these things possible. Is there any place in particular that you're thinking about right now? Oh my God, in, in the Patagonia National Park, uh, just under 800,000 acres in southern, southern Chile. Our, our, his name is Arcelio. He's the shyest person we have ever worked with and he's famous now. <laughs> he appears in Smithsonian Magazine. Everybody comes there, he was on the Netflix film recently because he's the guy. If you want to go out and you want to photograph wildlife, you don't, by, by reputation, if you don't get Arcelio, you're not going. <laughs> and, and it's the same with a few of them in, in Argentina because these things can't be artificial. These have to be authentic experiences, not for tourism, but in terms of bringing a place back and you're thinking in terms of 100 years, 150 years, this requires an embedded nature of people and wildlife and forests and grasslands that we barely understand today. And in the absence of that, I don't think um, with all the protection in the world, you can really protect these jewels and these people who have a wisdom that is built over millennia. Is there anything in the National Park Service that you see as wisdom being rediscovered from some of these relationships? Oh, absolutely. And as we're working with 49 tribes in Yellowstone on bison, them bringing through on how the grasslands were managed, how we used fire, that species were managed also, including wolves. Wolves are a predator. You know, what happened to wolves in North America was based on the Brothers Grimm and the experience that people had in Europe. They brought their fears with them to the new land and decided that they must eradicate mm -hmm. that predator. And that caused the imbalance. And very early on, I was very fortunate in 1995, just as Yellowstone was reintroducing wolves into its park, I was working with the Nez Perce tribe who was reintroducing wolves mm -hmm. into their own home territory. And talking to elders there said, we've lost this imbalance of elk. What they don't understand is that when this predator returns, the elk will have more in order to make up for the need of the predator. And we've seen the same thing at Yellowstone. Right. Our elk herds are much stronger. Our deer herds are much stronger because the wolves were reintroduced. And so these hunters who kept worrying, saying they're going to slaughter all of our game, that's not happened. The exact opposite has happened. But we've known that for thousands of years, and why nobody just asked is what always, always makes me wonder. We were standing right here. Ask us. Science is based on observation. Mm -hmm. If somebody's lived on the landscape for at least 10,000 years, they've got a science background. Right. <laughs> I, I do have to ask, though, the, those, the Yellowstone wolves, when it comes to observation, they are some of the most observed, and, and this is where we gleaned so much knowledge of their impact, the unintended consequences all the way through the ecosystem. And yet, in the last season, we saw uh, a governor killing wolves, or killing a wolf. And, and we saw the, the, the number of wolves killed uh, move much higher than it has in previous years. 
there is the side that says that that is something that the ecosystem can withstand, and then there is the side that says that we are already in an imbalance and uh, the damage has been done. How do you see it as, as the National Parks Director? So I have to look at the ecosystem as a whole, so not just Yellowstone. As I said, we have to look at the other and federal state lands, how many wolves are in those territories. And more importantly, we have a chance now to look at the wolves in a smaller subset ecosystem and how they're reacting. There's some, some ideas. The tribal folks that I've been talking to about this are saying, what you're going to see is a larger production of the wolves because we lost a pack. The other wolves will know that separately because that pack is no longer wandering into their normal places. And so they will compensate that by having more pups. What they may have caused an actual explosion. I don't know, we'll see the spring wow. as it comes through. The, the, these are consultations that you're having with the, with the tribes, tribes about, about the, like. the killing of wolves yes. by political figures. Yes. Wow. Uh, is that something new or is that something that, that's been there before and just hasn't been talked about? We've seen it happen before. We've seen it when, so I was on a project years ago. Uh, we were trying, calling it the Better Beha Beaver Behavior Project in the Columbia Slough in Portland, Oregon. And the idea is that um, beavers had been... Better, be better, be better, better, better beaver, beaver, better beaver behavior. behavior. Okay. Because they were cutting down so many trees. And I was like, oh. you cannot teach a beaver to do that. And we had a program that was doing... And, uh, and you, you can't know, report them to the Better Business Bureau. That's right. <laughs> better <laughs> Beaver Business Bureau. And rather than remove them to other watersheds that needed them, there was a program where they wanted to actually eliminate them. But of course, when you eliminate them, that just caused them to have more babies. So you didn't get to the root cause, which is that they're looking for food supplies. And beaver can be transplanted. We do know that. We can take them into watersheds that have less of them, and they will then propagate there. Um, Sometimes you can't tell folks what you've observed for thousands of years right. might be the plan. Yeah. I, I do want to ask about access because if you um, have been to Yosemite pre-pandemic, and I think now that things are starting to pick back up, it, there's a lot of people there. And it seems as though there's always this, this tightrope that you have to walk when it comes to um, loving a place to death uh, and allowing people access, and in particular, allowing people access that don't even know that it exists or have only read about it uh, or seen it on television. So what is that? Well, first of all, have you guys heard um, the new way that Yellowstone is gonna be allowing people into the park? No? <laughs> Let me tee you up there. Uh, so there's a big problem, right? There's, there's obviously flooding, there's choke points, and right now, they, they, they can't accommodate as many visitors as before. So do you redo the reservation system? Well, that's, that's the question, that's right? The question. And what happened? So we looked at it and we were preparing to have to do a reservation system, which is not very popular with the gateway communities, as you may imagine. One of the members of the gateway communities offered a solution that came from the 1979 oil crisis in America that on even days, with even numbers, last number of your license plate, you come in the park. On odd days, odd numbers of the license plate card. If you have a vanity plate with no numbers, that's an odd one because it's found out that it's less than 1% <laughs> of people having those license plates. And there was a lot of concern that that was just not gonna work. Matter of fact, there was a New York Times article from oh, several yeah. folks who were just saying it's never gonna work. The first day, and even right now, we're seeing less than 1% of people not complying. We're able to manage those and people are still getting their yeah. time in the park. If you have reservations already, you're gonna get in. It doesn't matter what your license plate number is. But for those who are just showing up at the gate, 
they can get in on odd or even days. So if you're planning a four-day trip, you're going to get 50% of the time into the park guaranteed. Wow. You know what do you guys think? I mean, it wasn't, a, wasn't complex. Yeah, and it, did, it doesn't sound like it came from a committee, right? No, it didn't come from a committee. It came, it came from a, an individual who didn't want, he was worried about his own community making fun of him, so he had Superintendent Sholley introduce it to a thousand people. <laughs> so, so the way that I understand it, he said, if this works, cool. If this doesn't work, don't tell anybody. Don't tell I anybody I came up with it. But if it worked well, then you can talk about me. Oh. So, uh, we're very happy that it's working well, but we were prepared to do one if necessary. Um, but, you know, we want to work with the gateway communities. We want solutions in the gateway communities. Um, but you were talking about access earlier, and we are concerned with access. You know, Mission 66, which started in 1956, was really about the 50-year anniversary of the National Park Service that was going to happen in 1966. And coming out of post-World War II, the boom was really about making sure the parks were available to the middle class. Mm -hmm. but we are seeing rising costs, costs in fuel, costs in places to stay, and we are very concerned about that. So as we come into this new century, having spent our first 100 years, we are very concerned that people have access, all Americans, at yeah. any level. So we've been doing different types of innovative programs to bring urban people in. You know, down in Biscayne and Everglades, we have a program that uses local city buses that are for free, that can get people into the parks so that they can spend the entire day in the park and get a free ride back out from the park. Mm -hmm. We need to look at other innovative ways and work with gateway communities because we want the American public to see a reflection of themselves within the national park system, and they should always feel welcome, and they should have access. Do you think you're... Do you think you're there yet, or is there? Oh no, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to keep working at it. Mm -hmm. 1978 was the first time that there was a um, congressional hearing 44 years ago where we heard the phrase that parks are being loved to death. So for 44 years later, and they actually are, we've seen an average of 20% increase throughout the national parks. We have a t nearly 15% decrease in staff in the parks. So we need to get more boots on the ground to help manage those resources, to ensure that people can come in and enjoy the parks. Um, and then we need to make sure and figure again, how do we rebalance that out? And we need the support of the American public to understand that also. Uh, in, in Latin America, I, I'm from, I was born in Guatemala, and I've, I've visited a lot of like the, Guata, the, the Mayan ruins, and it's a sense of pride. Um, however, I have to say that there are parts of, of Latin America that are racist, um, and there is a lot of racism still prevalent, and, and there, are, uh, there, is, there is a sense in certain places where it's like, you, you know, these, these are for us, that's for you, and it's this it's almost this unspoken uh, lack of access, but mm. do you, is there a struggle to make sure that all communities in, these, in, in the countries that you work are able to visit the park freely and know about the, this land being their land as well? Mm. Good question. The Chilean National Park System began in 1926, and Argentina, I think, has the third oldest national park system in the world. That said, Chileans and Argentines, they, they weren't backpackers. They, they didn't load up the family in the old car and go see the, you know, the giant sequoias and the, the way that a lot of us grew up. They didn't have a relationship to nature, per se. And we started a volunteer program down in Patagonia years ago, and people were coming from all over the world, but they weren't coming from Chile because 
just the concept of volunteerism was new. Right. Nothing wrong with that. But in the last 20 years, you've seen a huge change. Chileans actually driving from Santiago all the way down into Patagonia and leaving their kids off. And the kids are mochileros. They're going up and down the carretera astral. And, and um, so my sense is they weren't using their national parks, and they are far away, and it's expensive, all the things that you were just talking about. Um, in terms of racism, per se, I think that, yes, some of those countries, not just racist, but classist. Classist, yeah. Classist, classism is probably stronger mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of parts of Latin America than Mm -hmm. Race, person. and unfortunately, that classism is defined by not always, but but mm -hmm. anyway. So, um, like every country in the world, there is a lot to be done. And I watched the volunteer program be one of those kinds of things that strips down where you came from, who your parents are, that whole social skeleton that we wear around and work for three weeks, nonstop camping, taking fences down, and so on and so forth. And in those moments, in, in that atmosphere, and I'm sure it happens inside national parks where there's volunteerism, you see everybody end up exhausted, bruised, blisters, and, and laughing about all their ills together at night. And being miserable really draws us together. Right. <laughs> and those are, the days, those are the days we remember in our lifetime. And I, so I have seen in a short time what's possible. Mm -hmm. And Doug had the vision for anything we've done. He really was the visionary. And we both never worked for the national parks in the United States, but we were absolutely benefactors, uh, beneficiaries of them. And it, and it played out in, in a way that we can now see a generation and a half later in these two countries where we were working, where there are territories where all are welcome and all are ready to work. And I, my family was Calvinist, you know, nothing like good work to <laughs> solve everything. Um, but there is a little truth to that. And, and of course, having just came, come back from, from Africa, not just 10 days ago, we are so consistently reminded of maybe where we've come from, but how terribly far we have to go. And and that is the job of whether we're in our 80s or we're 12. This is the job of dignified communities wherever they are. And you've been in this for, for quite some time. Not a years. long time, but quite some time. Are you optimistic based on the progress that you've seen so far? I think we have. I, asked, I got asked this yesterday, how I think about hope and how optimism. And I say, I'm really clear that I think hope has to be earned. Mm -hmm. 
I think if I, I, I think hope sometimes is used as a, a sort of abdication. I hope you're doing everything that you need to do, so you know these things can flourish. I think we all have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say whether it's um, race, equity, extinction crisis, climate change, a breakdown in leadership around the world. To have hope, we, we have to earn hope. And that's an action. It's not an observation. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, I, I'm... I don't think we have a choice. We're in it now. Whatever evolves, you know, a spade in the ground is better than no spade at all. That's kind of how I see it. <laughs> well, I think we've got a little bit of time for questions. If, uh, I think we have some microphones floating around in the back. And we've got some hands up already. Um, it looks like there's one right next to you. Yeah, uh, we'll, go, we'll go there. And if you could just introduce yourself and quickly, uh, briefly state your question. Um, my name is River, and I'm a writer. And I'm just very curious, when you have this work being done that demands so much support from such vast populations, how do you design a mission and carry that out, uh, both engaging with people's passion and empathy, but also appealing to people's economic interests. Is there more emphasis on one over the other? Is focusing on one more effective than the other? How do you merge those two disparate things in one vision? Director, let's start with you. So, you know, the, the foundation of the, of the Americas is on an extraction economy. And so we really have grown in that, and that's been the basis of our wealth as a nation. Um, and by being able to set aside, though, these crown jewels across the United States over the last 150 years, we actually also recognize humans are calling out, and the American public are calling out, that we have to preserve these places for future generations. And so it is a fine, just as it is we're trying to find ecosystem balance, we have to find balance between human economic needs and challenges and ensuring that the mission that we have as the National Park Service to bring uh, those preservation enhancement and protections of those lands while making sure people of current generations and future generations can enjoyment, they're not uh, disparate, they're not uh, separate clauses, they're a symbiotic relationship. And again, it's recognizing that humans are part of the natural landscape. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Russell, and I have a question for Dr. Sams. I'm worried about wolves. I know that um, a number of wolves have been killed in Yellow, uh, who have wandered outside of Yellowstone recently. Wolves don't know where the park ends and, and state land begins. And there are hunting concessions around the park. And I'm wondering whether you have gotten in, you have considered um, engaging with the state to establish some kind of buffer zone around the park so that so many wolves wouldn't get killed when they step outside of the park. So we have. And prior to this governor, there were. So there were different sections, and we had an agreement with the governor, which we shut down those sections that were hunting sections from the previous governor to allow for the wolves to be able to roam in those areas during the winter months and then to be able to come back on the park. This current governor didn't want to negotiate that. And I received a letter from him that very clearly stated that once the wolves leave the national park, it's a state issue. It's not a federal issue. Um, 
I can't argue against state rights. I'm not going to argue against state rights. But we're trying to get him back at the table to understand why it's important and why they're part of a full ecosystem function and that by having them and not hunting them, we actually create, again, more other types of game that would actually even be economically better for the community mm. than hunting wolves and provide a meat source for many communities. Have you heard back? We're still in negotiations with the governor. <laughs> Thank you. We've got a question up here. So my name is Sarah Shaw, and I have a question about wilderness, probably for Dr. Sams. Um, so the Wilderness Act uh, came into effect in September 1964. So I think approximately 80% of our population today doesn't understand what wilderness is. So my question is, um, how do you explain that to this generation? And is there a future for wilderness? You know, I think it comes back down to understanding that balance. You know, that what other people call wild, many people have called home. And the Wilderness Act actually has a recreational component to it, right? It's important that people be able to get out and recreate into the, their natural environment. And it's talking to this generation. One thing the pandemic has done, one of the positive things, is getting people back into the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And so as we talk about the Wilderness Act and how we're actually putting uh, Great American Outdoors money out onto the ground, how we're putting down the bipartisan infrastructure law money down into the ground, both in trail maintenance and trail building, we want to make sure that we're inviting more of the American public out there to actually be out, quote unquote, in the wild. It also offers us an opportunity to provide more interpretation and education so that they understand what stewardship really means. It's not just up to us wearing the green and gray uniform, it's also up to you mm. who participate in the wild to be a, a conservationist and a steward of these resources. Well said. It, it, does, it does make me think of you know, the, that trope that yeah, kids are just in their phones and you know, the kids don't know what the great outdoors are anymore. Are there outreach programs that, that you guys are uh, working on to make sure that the youngest generations are appreciating our national parks? You know, as we were hoping to have full funding for the Climate Conservation Corps, it was going to be recruiting mostly 16 to 24-year-olds. Mm -hmm. We have the, at least the Indian uh, Youth Service Corps that's going out, and we have other youth corps programs around the country. Most recently, when I was in Yellowstone, the Montana Youth Conservation Corps members were there, and I got to talk with them. It is really building those next leaders in stewardship and introducing them into the net. I started myself in the Oregon Youth Conservation Corps when I was 16. That's what led me into a conservation uh, jobs. I didn't know it was going to lead me to become the National Park Service Director, and I told each of them, look what you can do someday. Uh, but, you know, it really does set that groundwork for stewardship because we have to start young so that they understand. They may, after this, never work again in a, in a park, but they will always have that stewardship value in there, and maybe they become a donor. Maybe they go back in, but they're going to teach their children, they're going to teach their family, they're going to teach their community members about the importance of conservation. And how does that conservation program work? Is it an internship? I mean, how, how There are summer programs and there are year-round programs. They are provided both through federal and state dollars in order to run the programs. The program I was running was a summer youth program that ran for three months of the year. Uh, we have year-round core programs. We also partnership with AmeriCorps in order to get people people out onto the ground to do conservation work, trail building, maintenance, and a number of projects. They are definitely a force multiplier, but more importantly, we're creating those next leaders and stewards. I think the other thing to, to, to say is that getting rangers um, 
female and uh, male rangers, local, regional, well-trained, same training anybody would get. And that's one of the big things that I think moves that relationship forward tremendously because, again, as I said, they're the geniuses of the place. They're coming out of the territory. And, and also, where we are in most of the communities, kids leave elementary school and for high school they have to go away. So now, and part of that is they don't see a reason to stay. And this is not a slam dunk. It's not universal. But you do see these, the nature of kids growing up in a lot of these isolated towns having an option that heretofore might not have been um, available to them. And, and I think that the ranger system is amazing, uh, even junior rangers. So that's part of it. We'll start with the, the hat right there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks. My name is Deb Banks. This is for you, Chris. Um, wonderfully, five years ago, I had the opportunity to ride my bicycle down the Carretera Austral with oh some friends God. all the way down to Ushuaia, and we stopped in Cochrane, and we came to Chacabuco. Oh. And sadly, it was on the fateful day that you lost your husband. Mm. And we were there to talk to you about the idea of scaling and replicating the model of how your system for buying up land and regenerating uh, animals and bringing back na a national park and then handing it back to um, another, to, to the country. Um, we wanted to know about whether or not you thought that model was replicable and how it might be, especially if the group of people didn't have uh, the sizable wealth, but it would take more than one, you know, more than a few people to help raise the money to be able to do the work that you've been able to engage in. So five years later, I get to ask you the question. Thanks. I would say that um, when you're thinking about long-term conservation, it is absolutely particular to place. In Chile and Argentina, creating national parks is kind of the gold standard accepted by, by both countries. I mean, internally accepted. Um, would you do it in in different countries in, in, in Africa or, or really pick a country, that has to be decided on the, on the judicial system in a country, on the legislative system. Uh, it really varies. So as a model of working locally, creating these places with um, teams from the country and so on, absolutely. But necessarily going to national parks, uh, I think that has to be determined by the nature of the, of the country itself. Chris, I'd like to just take a quick moment to acknowledge your, your husband's role in all of this. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I do want to ask, if he could see this, what do you think, what do you think he would think? Um, <clears throat> he would be proud that his ideas, which of course, 
course, when you start something at this scale, they're never fully formed. Um, a lot of it's organic. I think he's probably very proud that everything we started is donated and things are functioning. I, th I think um, he's proud that we're keeping it going. Uh, more coastal marine work, more terrestrial work. I think he worries like all of us do, or would worry like all of us do, that um, what we face as first human communities, the, the, the scarcity, the impacts of climate on human communities, as Sir David Attenborough says, most of the pe billions of people already are impacted by climate and they're the very people who have no say in it and they, they have no ability to get out of the way. And I, th and I think he was very hopeful for the next century, but very sad and concerned about the next 50 years. And I, um, you know, he would be he would be proud and say, Bertie, just go faster, go bigger, go. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. <laughs> and that's why, you're, that's why you continue to go faster and bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. He so was uh, an extraordinary person, not because he was my husband. He was also a knucklehead, but he was really, <laughs> he was really, uh, uh, an original person, and uh, you would enjoy him. <laughs> he's missed, but he's still he's still felt here. Yeah. And and all around Thank the world. Thank you for asking about him. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got a question over here. Hi there. Um, when we think about conservation. I was curious if um, you could speak a little bit on, you know, there's a certain merit in setting aside land and the idea of stewardship, but how much of that conversation needs to go into things like resource consumption or other facets? Thanks. Director, we'll start with you on that one. <laughs> so growing up, with conservation values, growing up in a natural resource environment with a community that thought of it that way. Um, like most people at the time, and when I was young, I wanted to get away. So uh, my, I used to be a Soviet analyst. I'll throw that out there. Soviet analyst. In the late 1980s. Wow. So, unlike the CIA, I did work in the intelligence community at one point. That's where the, so, the, the, the uh, security clearance came. Yes. All right. So I, when I went back to college, I was finishing a degree in international studies, and my elders came, my grandfather came my senior year and said, we want you to get a business degree. I was like, I don't want a business degree. Well, you don't want a business degree, but we need you to get a business degree mm -hmm. because we need you to understand their economic models. Why do they work in 30 days? Why do they work on quarters? Mm. Why do they work on year end? Mm. Why are they not thinking generational? Mm. I said, and when I got into business school, I noticed immediately, wow, this paradigm, the scarcity model, mm -hmm. that I have unlimited wants but limited resources was so foreign to what I grew up with. Because my value is I have limited wants. I want shelter, 
I want food, I want warmth, I need water, and I have unlimited resources because those are all provided by the natural world. And so when we look at conservation, it's how do we get to that model? It's really not about conserving, it's about recognizing that you don't have unlimited wants. And if you are doing the unlimited wants, that is a little bit selfish. And so that's, that's a personal choice, I'm not trying to make a judgment, it's a personal choice. But then you are taking resources away from other people and other things. And I see a change slowly in this nation of recognizing that. One, because our existential threat that we keep thinking is gonna happen, climate change, is happening. We are in a climate crisis and we can't stay in our heads anymore about it. And we have to figure out different models while still being able to ensure that we have a strong economy. But we might have to start looking at, we might have more limited wants and we have to help bring back those unlimited resources. What, what did you tell your elders? Were you, when you, how did you explain like the whole quarterly? Like the... Uh, so I went back and explained and we looked at it in our own business models. How do we make them sustainable? Uh, and eventually I became the chair of our holding company and how we made investments to ensure that it wow. was much more in balance in what we do mm. and how we work, um, where we're working carbon sequestration, where we're buying up forest land and what does that look like? And, you know, those were important things and making sure that you're mentoring the next generation to come up to be able to take those over and run those. Right now, a very good friend of mine who's younger than I am, Cisco Minthorn, is our current chair of our holding company. And we talk about this regularly because that was, we come from an abundance model, not a scarcity model. Oh, something to keep in mind. And we just got the zero minutes uh, sign over there. So we just want to thank you so very much. Yes. For the thank you guys so much. Chuck Sams is the director of the U.S. National Park Service. He is a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Northwest Oregon and is Cayuse and Walla Walla. He also has ties to the Kokopa Tribe and Yankton Sioux of Fort Peck. Previously, Sams was a member of the Pacific Northwest Power and Conservation Council. Before that, he was executive director for the Confederated Tribes for the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Christine Tompkins is co-founder and president of Tompkins Conservation, where she oversees projects rewilding the Americas. She and her late husband, Doug Tompkins, are considered some of the world's most successful national park-oriented philanthropists. Tompkins was previously CEO of Patagonia, where she worked from 1973 until 1993. She was the first conservationist to be awarded the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy. Gotti Schwartz is a correspondent for NBC News. He also hosts the streaming news series The Overview on Peacock and co-hosts the Stay Tuned News Show on Snapchat's Discover platform. Schwartz covers climate, immigration, technology, politics, and pop culture for all platforms and has helped NBC pioneer the way young viewers consume news. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.